This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's Pride Month, a time when LGBTQ Americans celebrate and look to strengthen civil rights for their community. But as Republicans villainize LGBTQ people and rhetoric and the law and militia groups target them for violent attack, this Pride Month feels a bit more complicated. That may be especially true for Black LGBTQ Americans who are feeling targeted on two fronts. I know for me, like I always realize, no matter how much I think we've progressed, I'm kind of always, you know, on guard, you know, to hold my boyfriend's hand on the street is still revolutionary. Black LGBTQ pride coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's Pride Month, and LGBTQ Americans, along with allies, are attending marches, rallies, and other celebrations of the community. But this pride comes at a time of uncertainty and heightened violence against LGBTQ people. Republicans are openly vilifying gay, lesbian, and transgender people, and now violent militia groups are targeting pride events, from parades to drag queen story time. For African Americans in the community, this disturbing trend comes on the heels of a backlash after the racial reckoning. Joining us to talk about it is Clay Kane. He's the author of Live Through This, Surviving the Intersections of Sexuality, God, and Race. He also hosts the Clay Kane Show on SiriusXM. Clay Kane, welcome to A Word. What's up, Jason? Thank you for having me, brother. Before we start, I'd like to warn listeners that this will be a frank discussion about homophobia, <laughs> and our guest will talk about his experience yes. of being called an anti-gay slur. Clay, I just want to ask, especially in the context of, of the attacks in Idaho and across the country against the LGBTQ community, how are you marking pride this year? And does it feel different this year in the wake of mass shootings and both policy and physical violence to celebrate this month? You know, it does feel different. And it actually reminds me of when I used to go to pride in the uh, late 90s. And I can recall going and maybe not thinking of mass shootings. But knowing that if you turn down the wrong block, uh, knowing that if some alleged straight people turn down the wrong block, that you might experience uh, violence. And I can recall there's an area in New York City called Christopher Street. And I can recall crossing Christopher Street uh, to make it on this side called the pier for LGBT folks out there in New York. That's a, that was a, that was to some degree still is a very popular area that younger LGBT folks would go and folks driving by in New York city, late nineties would throw bottles at us, would scream faggot at us, would say uh, the N word to us or they, or say spick. Uh, and I, then I, when I was going to pride, I eventually, this is late nineties, maybe early two thousands as well. I would only come out at night. Because I just didn't feel safe being out there during the day. 
And I know folks might say, well, isn't it scarier at night? Well, I guess the, the crowds are going and it's a different kind of atmosphere. But yeah, I'm certainly feeling that now. I'm feeling like um, our right to exist is at risk. And I also feel like a lot of white LGBT organizations uh, don't get the intersections. I think about a just going to be honest here, organization like the Human Rights Campaign, HRC, uh, that I think has failed in many, many ways. And so I think for black LGBT folks specifically, that uh, there is a sense of our our safety at risk. And yeah, so I feel that and it's a, it's a strange feeling. And I know for me, like I always realize no matter how much I think we've progressed, I'm kind of always, you know, on guard, you know, to hold my boyfriend's hand on the street is still revolutionary, especially for two black men. You know what I mean? So I certainly feel that with the policies and um, with it also being celebrated, you know, it's being celebrated that all gay people are taken over and so and so's taken over. Uh, it's this there's there's been this shift where pushback against um, a group who some people feel like it's the alphabet community. They're complaining too much because uh, I guess they they see gay as being a white thing. So where does that lead black LGBT folks? So, yeah, I felt a difference. So I'm I'm glad because there's so much in that I want to unpack. When I was, again, talking to some friends of mine, they were commenting on the fact that I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to the Pride Parade on Sunday with some friends, really excited. And and many of the, the black gay men that I know were like, eh, mm-hmm. that's the white Pride event. Right. Here we are in 2022. Do you think there has been has there been more integration in pride events? Well, on the surface, you'll see more, quote unquote, diversity. But as far as all the pride, you know, those pride, those pride marches, they are very profitable. They bring in a, a lot of money. So but the the, the the head, the the higher ups who are orchestrating all the pride events, they're all white gay men. And, and, and let, let's be clear. Pride was not about rainbows. It was not about corporate parties. It was a revolutionary act against police violence. That's what it was about. That's the roots of Stonewall. That's the roots of pride acting, pushing back against police. Pride was radicalism. So I think about I think like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia and Sylvia Rivera kind of be rolling in their grave to see that, that that's the way that it's corporatized. But on on the on the outside. Yeah. But where it matters, where who's getting the check or who's getting their, their little rainbow check. No, the diversity isn't there at all. Because there people forget that there is this this issue of racism in the LGBT community. And I got to be honest with you, Jason, I haven't been to a mainstream pride event in probably 15, 20 years, maybe. I just have no desire to be there. You talked about the human rights campaign. How do you think these sort of white run LGBTQ groups that you've talked about, have they done a good job at all of addressing racial reckoning since George Floyd? Are they still sort of like, well, we threw a dollar when we wore a Black Lives Matter sign during the parade and that's it? How, how do you think those organizations have handled these issues? Well, it depends on what you consider racial reckoning to be. You know, so if you consider racial reckoning to be 
releasing a statement and putting Marsha P. Johnson on your on your website, then I guess they have done uh, they've had some progress to pe- for, for people. But the, the issue of organizations like uh, like HRC and, and plenty of other organizations is that this has been an ongoing problem that black LGBT folks have been talking about for decades. So the kind of a repair they would need to do. Uh, the kind of come to black Jesus moment they would need uh, really goes beyond uh, this moment that people had in 2020. So, no, I mean, there's still a deep issue there. And I think where where I am, where I am, is that I feel like uh, similar to black communities at large is that I don't even want to support these kinds of organizations. I don't want to ask you to uh, to deceive me. I don't want to I don't want to have to explain my right to exist to you. I don't want to have to do a one on one on race, you know, for you. So I've even moved beyond just being in the space. I just feel like we can create our own spaces. And I feel like there are so many powerful black LGBT folks on social media that have their kind of own platforms that we can we can elevate that. That do we really need these traditionally white uh, conservative? And I know folks. You think there's no way an LGBT person can be conservative, but truly conservative organizations uh, begging to support us. And I say the answer to that is is no. If we can support and build our own in whatever way that is, you know, we're not going to, you know, you see what happened with our black news channel. You know, maybe that's not that's not the way to do it. But whatever way that it is to realize we don't need affirmation from them. Have there been black LGBT groups that have come to the fore to to fill in the spaces to 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 fill in the gaps where pride uh, where HRC is and other organizations are. Yeah, there has, especially in Atlanta. You know, we've seen and uh, Vision Church in Atlanta does some really great work. Uh, Bishop Allen does some really phenomenal work. They launched a new platform, I, I believe it's called Elevate, uh, where they're really showcasing and highlighting uh, Black LGBT content creators. Uh, but here's part of the issue. And a lot of this goes to numbers, right? So black folks are, what are we, 12% of the population now after that More horrible yeah. census you know, debacle? Right. <laughs> so we have black folks, just black folks at large, 12% of the population. Then let's say you go to black LGBT folks. Well, you're slashing that, that number down to maybe six less than 6%, less than 5%. So mm-hmm. it's a, and then let's say you're just looking at black gay men. Because, you know, there's right. also issues with within black gay men and black trans folks. Right. Uh, you know, black gay men can have misogyny. Black gay men can have transphobia. So it really is a, a niche within a niche within a niche. And so how do you elevate that in a particular way where it can reach people that it needs to reach? So for me, for me, I say that. A lot of this goes to funding and money and dollars that we have to have realistic expectations and we have to not say that we're going to compete with the organizations that have been around for a long time and have and and from straight organizations that feel like all age LGBT folks are in the same are are in the um, same category. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on black perspectives on LGBTQ pride with Clay Kane. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. 
Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramps business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramps software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about African Americans and LGBTQ rights with journalist Clay Kane. Clay, this is something that I, I have noticed. I am old enough to remember in the late 80s when I first started seeing commercials celebrating Black History Month and MLK holiday. And I remember like being a kid and it'd be like, you know, free at last. Well, these mattresses aren't free, but they're discounted because you know, like it's, it, it was crass and it was tacky, but it was like 1988. And it was the first time I saw large corporations trying to commodify Black History Month. There's been a lot of commentary I've seen online about that with Pride Month, where you have these organizations do these, I guess, sometimes well-intentioned, but sometimes extremely strange ads that supposedly show their support for the LGBTQ community. There was the, I, I think I actually texted you this, there was the Burger King ad that like put two tops and two bottoms of the buns on some burgers, and I was like, I was like, this is cringe, right? Like, help me. <laughs> I think this is bad. Um, wh- what have you thought about that? I mean, as, as someone who, you know, is, 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 is a gay black man in media, what have you thought about the sort of commercialization of Pride Month? Is that a good thing? Is that a sign that, that themes are sort of being mainstreamed? Or is it is it more sort of hypocrisy? Because a lot of these same businesses and corporations give money to right-wing candidates who are anti-LGBTQ. You know, I really struggle with this. So um, the only images that I saw, let me be very specific, of uh, gay men, of uh, black gay men when I was younger was in pornography. And that's not me to shame any kind of pornography. That was just my first image of seeing two men showing intimacy to each other. So the part of me that is has my issues with capitalism and and corporations. It disgusts me because I know they're taking a movement that is so anti these massive corporations who do not give a F about you after they get your dollars for LGBT pride. So it's, it's, it's disingenuous. Uh, it's, it's obviously, you know, they realize it's marketable and it's rainbows. It's all, it's all these, these rainbows. So it almost looks, uh, you know, fairy tale-ish or whatever. Uh, so there's that side of it. And that frustrates me. And I know it's insincere, but I will say um, outside of the rainbows, I will say that when I see um, a commercial, not necessarily when I see imagery of of LGBT folks or black gay folks, I do wonder, wow, I wonder if I would have saw that when I was a kid, maybe I would have hated myself a little less. Maybe I would have uh, stopped trying to pray the gay away. Maybe I would have not been so impacted by bullies who were calling me a faggot every day. Maybe as I was running from my life after school, uh, hoping to not get my teeth knocked in, that maybe I would have uh, realized that it wasn't me that had the issue. 
it was them who had the issue. So I think for as complicated as it is, and again, it's not genuine, I do feel like if I were, if I were a kid and I saw that, it would have had a really important impact on me. And I know a lot of folks, um, you know, feel like Little Nas X isn't that great of a singer or whatever. But I do know, I mean, if I would have saw a black, I mean, I heard of like Elton John maybe, but that's about all I really knew. And Elton John, you know, you knew he was gay, but he really didn't say anything. He didn't like show intimacy on camera. If I would have saw a Little Nas X, a, a hip hop pop star, uh, you know, showing intimacy with the guy and having songs of how he wants love like anybody else. That would have had an impact on me. So it's it's a, it's complicated. On one end, the, the older person in me is disgusted by it. It's annoying. I know it's disingenuous. But on the other end, as trite as it sounds, representation does matter. And it really can affirm you. And so d- does the end satisfy the means? Maybe. So when it comes to representation, and, and you and I, again, have had this conversation on and off air, where do you see the state of 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 black queer representation in TV and movies. Now I, I will say this. You know, I see the CW launching this new show Tom Swift, right? About this, you know, 20 something gay black man who's like flies around the world and solves crime and everything else like that. And I think and you know, and he has this sort of tension with his bodyguard. That I'm like, okay, cool. But I see in a lot of other instances in commercials and in this new show on Netflix first kill that the idea of black on black love in the queer community is still very rare. When you think of the images that they're choosing and I, and I, me and my friends in my circle, will be like, yo, when can we see, uh, if just being two, two black gay men. And I n- never forget when I interviewed Justy Smollett, I know folks have issues with him. This is before that issue. He said in empire, they wanted to make his boyfriend white. And Justy told me on air, he said, F no. We're not doing that. Jamal Lyon is going to have a black boyfriend. The truth of the matter is, is that um, black gay men are a very insular community. And what I mean by that, according to the uh, CDC, black gay men are known to date other black gay men more than any other demographic. But you wouldn't think that's the case. So you want to have your your love affirmed because I always say we got to look at LGBT folks above the groin. Everybody obsesses over LGBT folks below the groin. So you want to have your love affirmed in your sexuality because you know how you might be hurt in your church or in your school or in your community. But you also want to have it affirmed uh, in your racial identity because I grew up thinking gay was a white thing. I didn't even know black gay folks existed. I didn't even know they were. The, I, just, I just thought it was a white thing. I'm like, yo, what's going on? And then, of course, you're being called a faggot in school and all these kind of things. So. It's so important to see that. It's important to see that not just in gender or not in sexuality, but also in race. And we just don't see enough of black gay folks together, black lesbian couples together. And then when you see that the, the lesbian couples is definitely it sometimes appears to be um, a uh, a way to appeal to, you know, straight men. So so oh, totally. so it's yeah. a lot. So for me, uh, it's important for me to see black love and varying examples of black love and you know what to shout this out one of the greatest examples of that and we have to go to our own a lot of folks don't know about it is a native son emil wilbekin he does native son he showcases black love all the time they have they have annual events 
and a lot of folks don't know them, but Emil built that from the ground up. They do amazing, amazing work. And so I sometimes have to look to that, but I definitely agree with you. And again, if you're a young black gay person uh, and you see, you know, their tokenism, it can be uh, a bit frustrating. Uh, along those same lines, um, this actually just popped up in the news this week, and I thought it was fascinating. I was like, great, I'm going to ask, ask Clay about it. Um, Michael Sam is actually back in mm. the news. Um, yes, and is. for context, the audience who may not remember, Michael Sam uh, was a defensive player of the year uh, in the SEC in like 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, b- before he entered the draft, um, he came out publicly and did big interviews and said, hey, you know, I'm a gay black man, blah, blah, blah. And many people speculated that that had a harmful impact on his draft position. Um, and he never played it down in the NFL. And yet just last year, right, we had an openly gay uh, player on the Raiders. Then he's, I believe, I think he was like uh, part Middle Eastern or something else like that. I remember the gentleman's name. Looking at Michael Sam as a time capsule, right? Six years ago, you can't even get into the league as a, as a, a gay black man, as a player. Where do you think the state of, of sort of black LGBT issues are in, in sports right now? Do you think we're... You know, do you think we're we're getting closer to the day where, you know, somebody will show up to their press conference and say, hey, this is my partner? Do you think we're getting to a point where that wouldn't be an absolute end to someone's career as it might have been for Michael Sam? Or do you think that that is still one area of American society where it's like, no, this is just this is not going to be open anytime soon for people to live their full lives publicly? I think it's going to be difficult because uh, part of sports is selling hyper masculinity. And sadly, a lot of people, uh, you know, they only associate hyper mass. I shouldn't say sadly, but people associate hyper masculinity with being straight. And so how can you be uh, masculine? How can you do what's considered to be a masculine sport and be a uh, straight man? They see it. They see it. They see being gay as being weak. And there's nothing wrong with being uh, masculine or feminine, obviously. But uh, people associate mannerisms with uh, with gender. So I think it's going to be really tough. I will say this, though. I never forget years ago. I've said this on TV before. When the uh, when there was all that controversy of homophobia in the NFL, this is before Michael Sam, the NFL, Roger Goodell, they sat down with Glad. They sat down with every LGBT organization. They flew Glad in and they had a, an epic meeting. And Glad had a 50-point plan. Wow. Strategy. Ex- ex- execution. Because, you know, now they get fined for saying something yeah, homophobic yeah. and crazy. Glad laid it out. And now homophobia in the NFL, you know, I'm, I'm, I know it's still there. And, and there aren't a lot of openly gay folks there. But nonetheless, as far as they're they're celebrating pride uh they're doing all these things because there were actual demands made and it actually and, and and they got a return in it and so i i always find that interesting and then folks say oh the lgbt they asked for so much uh, some of them are demanding it and they're and they're and they're and they're get they're getting it and they're putting dollars on the line for it so uh but as far as actually being a player i think it's going to be tough you know, we, we have this idea that, oh, young people are so evolved and they've no. grown up and they <laughs> no racism, homophobia. No, nah, it's it's not. I mean, look at I mean, uh, what's his name? 
Brian Flores. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we can't even get a, a black coach to not be vilified, right. you know what I'm saying? Uh, in the in the NFL, we're a long way from an LGBT person or a black LGBT person uh, being able to play. And you know, I think a lot of us we we just want to be able to live our lives. I mean, I have friends who who are in their 50s and they have really prominent jobs, and nobody at the job knows about them mm. because they just don't feel comfortable. The, the, the day-to-day lives of people just not feeling safe. That if I say this, I'm not going to get fired, although in some states you can be fired for being LGBT, but I'm not going to get that promotion. Right. You know, I know, I know friends who are in like five-year relationships and they've never brought their partner to work. Wow. Because they just don't feel safe and they know what the reaction is going to be. So you accept it and you create your own world and your own circle with the people that you know. And you see a pride flag and you say, good. But how does that impact your daily life, your daily, daily life? I know people who live in who live in the South and they may be HIV positive and they're fighting for fair health care mm-hmm. and they can't get it. So these are the, the, the day to days that that people live through and go through. And so if they are at work and Michael Sam comes up, they don't say a word. Right. Because they they know all oh, this this you know they they know what the converse they're at the barbershop, mm-hmm. Michael Sam comes up they're not gonna say a little Nas X comes up they're not gonna say a word mm-hmm. because they don't even wanna that is not the moment where they feel like arguing for their right to exist. It, it's fascinating when you talk about comfort in the workplace from your perspective when we talk about corporate America is there a space where the 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 gay black male coworker or the 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 lesbian black woman coworker is now sort of a virtual signaling commodity that's another level of pressure do you see that sort of thing happening either in corporate america where it's like well we're going to we're going to have this gay black man because it makes us look diverse but we don't really care about his lived experiences we just like having him there see i don't know it's complicated because i feel like um some some people are okay with you being gay as long as they don't see it mm, yeah so I feel like people are oftentimes freaked out when they see somebody with their partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like they're disturbed if they see a quick peck on the lips mm-hmm. or a holding of the hands or a picture of your partner on your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've heard from my friends, I don't work in corporate America anymore, is that, OK, if they find out, that's fine, but they don't want to see it. Mm. Uh And it's interesting you bring up the example of an interracial relationship. Me and my friends always say this, that our fathers would rather we come home with a white woman any day (laughs) over a black gay man. (laughs) Like if I, if I told my father I was marrying a white woman, I mean, you know, he would, he would be okay with that versus knowing that I'm in a relationship with a black gay man. So I don't, I think people, you know, people act like, they're threatened by what they pers- what whatever they think people do in bed. Right. But I think they're really threatened by love. Mm. I think they're really threatened by people being happy. Right. That that's really the threat. That there's something about that. And I know for a lot of people, they think you know. Uh, again, they think it's a weakness thing, and you're not a good representation of black men. You know, I'll never forget Jason. My first time I went to Harlem. And as I was walking down the street, I saw a, a shirt in the in the window. It had a it was a black shirt and white letters. And it said, 
a real man doesn't do drugs. Hmm. A real man loves God. A real man does not sleep with men. Wow. Never. It was on a t-shirt in the window. Wow. On a t-shirt, black shirt and white letters. It was like a uppercut. Cause all my life I've been taught how to deal with racism Mm -hmm. from my father, my, 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 my grandfather, even my mother who's white all my life. I've been taught how to deal with racism. But I was never really prepared how to deal with that isn't even homophobia. That's just like that kind of ugliness. Right, it's just violence. And yeah, and that almost impacted me more. I've experienced more racism, Mm -hmm. but it almost impacted me more because it came from my own community. Mm -hmm. So it hurt in a different kind of way. Wow. It hurt in a different kind of way. We're going to take a short break. We come back more about black gay rights. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Pride Month for Black Americans with author and radio host Clay Kane. So, Clay, I understand you're working on, like, a graphic novel or cartoons uh, dramatizing the life of civil rights organizer Bayard Rustin. Just, you know, I love comic books. So can you tell us a little bit about this project? All right. So it's not completely a graphic novel. Um, I'm working on a project with John Lewis's production company uh, with uh, creating um, uh, short form comic books, if you will, for the Department of Education in New York City. And of course, for folks who don't know, Bayard Rustin was the architect of the March on Washington. He was Dr. King's right-hand man, and he was basically erased from history. This is a guy who did incredible, incredible work, and it was an attempt to erase him. And you've really seen a resurgence of him now. So it's really cool that I that I could, I'm sure we'll get banned somewhere. <laughs> That's your goal. You, you want to get banned, then going. you know you did something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be a good man. Uh, yeah, but it's really cool uh, to be able to highlight him in a, in a comic book, storybook kind of format. So it it'll, should be out uh, in the fall. Let's say I have a son or daughter, right, um, who who knows their identity. It's like, hey, mom, mom, dad, I'm queer, I'm gay, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. When it comes to, say, political leaders, right, you're talking about Rustin. Name two or three political leaders maybe that have been erased in the past or today that you would that you would want a nine or 10 year old kid or a 13 year old to hear about that would help them sort of live in their identity and say, Hey, there is a space for me. I don't have to go through six or seven years of hating myself. I, I can be like this woman or that woman or that man. Uh, well, there's Alan Locke, uh, name people don't know. One of the great leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, it wasn't just Langston Hughes. It wasn't just the Nor Hurston folks who I love a lot. Uh, I would encourage looking him up. He was really a social and political leader during the Harlem Renaissance. 
Uh, there is A. Philip Randolph, of course. A lot of folks don't know uh, that he was LGBT. They weren't saying that back then. They were saying homosexual. And A. Philip Randolph, he planned uh, the first March on Washington, which was um, which was canceled. Uh, well, it, well, I shouldn't say canceled, but they decided to not do it uh, because I believe Eisenhower gave in to desegregating the uh, national defense uh, um, industries. So A. Philip Randolph is a name that we often forget. And I, I tell people, you know, go back and research his history and research his work. And lastly, um, I would say, hmm, I'm trying political in a very particular kind of way. Maybe she isn't a politician, but I just think of her as a warrior. And I encourage folks to revisit her story. And it's a name that you probably know, but it's Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde was a, a writer and she was often X'd out of black radical literary circles because she was a lesbian. So those are names that I, I think back and I, I think that they inspire me. And of course, other writers as well, like Alice Walker and, and, and so on. Uh, but the other thing that I always say, too, is that, you know, one of the things that I always hear is people say, well, I don't agree with that, quote unquote, lifestyle. First of all, it isn't a lifestyle, but I don't agree. But saying you don't agree would be like saying you don't agree with the sun rising or the sun setting. Being being attracted to the same sex or the opposite sex is as natural as the sun rising or the sun setting. So there was nothing to disagree with. And for black folks, we don't have the space, the time to throw away other black people. We can't throw away Angela Davis. We can't throw away like I, like I, I said, Alice Walker. We can't throw away black LGBT folks, the founders of Black Lives Matter. We can't throw them away. They are a part of our community. We need all of us collectively because because a lot of white LGBT folks are throwing away black LGBT folks. We don't want to do that. We need each other. We collectively need each other. And that's what I want us to all when I see these Twitter wars on social media and the alphabet community and now nah, like we're a part of this together day by day. And that's what I, I want people to really remember, especially in the, in the black community, that we don't have time to throw each other away. We, we need each other collectively at the voting booth, uh, at a march on social media, in media. We all need each other. Clay Kane is the author of Live Through This, Surviving the Intersections of Sexuality, God, and Race, and the host of The Clay Kane Show on SiriusXM. Thank you, man, so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you, brother. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. This episode was produced by Eric Aaron. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.